If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on today's show, the healthcare meeting of the first ministers happened yesterday. It's going to take more than a meeting though, right? We'll have a conversation about that. The Bay closing a couple of locations in Alberta, including that iconic one on Banff Avenue. And the Chinese balloon crisis. Everybody says we should have done more. We should have acted more strongly, sent a stronger message. We'll have a conversation with a guest who says, you know what? It was handled exactly the way it should have been. There was some important business at hand yesterday beyond the handshake, and that is what we're going to do about healthcare in this country. It's a crisis right across the country. Um, and that's what this meeting was supposed to kickstart in terms of getting things improved, right? And, and the other aspect of this is it's a first minister's meeting and the return of first minister meetings. So, but how much will really be accomplished because of that one meeting? What else do we need to do? We're going to chat with David McLaughlin now, president and chief executive officer of the Institute on Governance. He was a deputy minister in intergovernmental affairs in both New Brunswick and Manitoba. David, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Happy to be here, Shay. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't gloss over the fact that this is the first time, I think it's been almost five years, right, since we've had a first minister's meeting? That's right. Certainly one in person, right, uh, because of the pandemic. Now, there were lots of uh, phone calls uh, by uh, yeah. first ministers during the pandemic, and that worked quite well. I mean, people got down to business, right? There's nothing like a health emergency to force people to put your politics aside. And, and that actually, you know, worked well enough to get some uh, money across the table from the federal government to support on everything from PPE to vaccines and, and other kinds of stuff. So, so that was good. But, you know, as soon as the pandemic is over, we kind of reverted back to the old style of political political posturing and, you know, once in a, you know, once every few years get together for a first minister's meeting and, and we get the kind of dynamics that we saw yesterday, which is, you know, very high politics and we're not so clear on the substance of the policy yet. Yeah, exactly. And when we talk about these minister's meetings and things like that, how much really do you expect to get accomplished? I mean, there was some announcements. There was Now the yeah. pre- premiers are all taking it back to talk about what they're going to do with it. I mean, what's a reasonable expectation? Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done. How important was this meeting in terms of what needs to be done? Well, it was very important because, as you said, it was the first time in, in quite a while yeah. that, that they got together. And it, was, and it was also the first one on the, the number one issue in people's minds of health care. But the, the premiers have been asking for this meeting for quite a while. I mean, uh, when I was deputy minister in government affairs, Premier Pallister, I mean, uh, this was a big thing. And so having the meeting is no small deal, of course. But the real question is, is what's going to come out of it? So you got to think of it as a bit of a process. So these things are, are rarely resolved at in, in in one go, uh, and they're certainly not resolved for any great length of time. And that was the point of, of my writing this, this column yesterday in the Gold Mail was to actually remind people that healthcare is is such a big deal that you can't expect to fix it all at once, and you need to have that uh, a series of meetings focused directly on it, where you can hold each other to account. You can uh, see how that's going and make the adjustments as uh, as uh, you know as, as you see fit. And uh, we're we're not going to quite see that yet. So this is first meeting. Um, First step, find out how much money the federal government is going to put on the table. So premiers now have that. But the premiers also got 
from the federal government is how the feds are going to give you that or give premiers and provinces that money. So yes, more money for the Canada health transfer. That's what every premier wants because that's, uh, you know, flexible money for health care. But the federal government said, oh, well, hang on, though. No, we're also going to do these bilateral deals with each province on a series of specific things. So we, it, it was important to both see the quantum Big numbers on healthcare, although they don't add up to as much as premiers want. And then a series of other focused policy, bilateral deals, mental health, indigenous health, and the rest of it. So there's much more work to be done. And the question is, um, can we do it? Uh, have we made enough of a departure from the same old, same old, right? Adding more money. Okay. Everybody agrees that that's yeah. part of this, but are we doing enough? I mean, a lot of people saying we got to do some drastic things here. We've really got to change the way we approach this. Are we doing that? No. No, I, I, there's nothing that I saw uh, in the uh, uh, in, in what was reported on yeah. this that will fundamentally change the um, uh, the arc and the pathway that we're on now. Now, look, every province, every health system needs more money to build up the capacity that was eroded during the pandemic. Uh, but you know, a once in a, in a, a century pandemic is not something you fix with just uh, you know uh, the latest healthcare you know fixer upper from the intergovernmental yeah, yeah. first minister's team. Right, you need fundamental reforms. You got burnout in the system. You, we have people uh, insufficient, uh, uh, you know, healthcare professionals. We've got, uh, you know, being available. We've uh, capacity issues, backlogs, and other things. So, we need more reform. We need, and and we've got a growing population. Oh, here's the federal government talking about bringing in, you know, fair enough, 1.5 million more immigrants over the next few years. Great, we need that for the economy. But do we have a healthcare system mm-hmm. that's going to support that? You know, plus all the graying population of, uh, you know, folks like me and others who are going to need this. So it's, it, it, no, they, it does not feel and does not look, Shay, to me anyways, as, as a, as a, as that bigger fix that is needed. And then we've also got, I mean, and part of the conversation around was having trying to open up the door to this, I think, is the fact that we've got sort of this mixed jurisdiction. The money comes yeah. from Ottawa, but it ends up the provinces decide what they're going to do with it to a certain extent. There's strings attached. I mean, that yeah. could be cleaned up too. Well, that's, uh, it could be, but, uh, don't look, you know, don't hold your breath on that yeah, for this yeah. reason. Um, political, uh, you know, visibility and political credit. So the fact that the federal government, uh, and this Trudeau federal government, which has been very consistent on this, frankly, they are doing these bilateral deals. They did it on childcare. They did it on, on other social, uh, issues. They did it in previous, uh, you know, intergovernmental arrangements. And so they're not just going to give more money to premiers, uh, uh to spend on health care where they don't get any kind of recognition for it. Now, they want, uh, and that's why they're going with these bilateral arrangements on very specific topic areas, such as mental health and home care and, and indigenous health. So not, not needed. Like, I mean, these are good things. Yeah, but yeah. when they do that, then they're negotiating with Alberta and they say, okay, Premier Smith, now we're going to give you this money. Now, what are you going to do to make certain this money goes to where we would like it to go? And we can talk about that. But also, what kind of money are you going to put in to support this, because now you are entering the, the areas of provincial jurisdiction where the where provinces are already ponying up dollars, and so like, wait a second, now I got this federal money. It sounds great, but 
that's going to add more costs here. Maybe I want to make some changes over here. So it's, uh, it's, not, it's a good thing in theory, but the practice of it is much more complicated and doesn't always uh, work as well, out as well as people think. Is there any way to get this out of that political cycle that you talk about? That would be such a step forward where it's not something that people use for political advantage or as a target for their opponents. I mean, if it was removed from that election cycle and the political cycle yeah. and actually was dealt with on a need basis... Yeah, and that, and that was really what I was trying to get at, yeah. and, and my point. I think the uh, the classic uh, you know intergovernmental dynamic of bringing your top politicians together. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to politics. They're going to politics. That's yeah. their job. That's their job. And so, when, it is a good thing when leaders focus on stuff because it gets things done. Right? That creates the focus. It cuts through. But it is always so political uh, by nature, and and it's really the stuff underneath that is going to have to happen. And my my feeling on healthcare is, and I think the evidence is showing, we've had these fixes, Paul Martin fix for generations. We've had healthcare, you know, funding from the the Kretchen days. Stephen Harper did fiscal imbalance. Trudeau, when he was first in, gave uh, you know gave some more money to healthcare. But it's different now because we're out of a pandemic and the system is on. I don't want to say it's on life support. That's yeah, not no. But it's it's really it's it's rocky. Yeah. And and on that basis, business as usual of premiers and prime ministers is not going to be a recipe for guaranteed success. And therefore, I think it needs a different dynamic. And I think we have to try to exactly what you're talking about, Shay. We got to take it out of that sort of political dynamic and and create something a, a new intergovernmental mechanism. This is the the country can do this. We're pretty adaptable. We can make that work. Put something out there where we actually have, you know, uh, working folks with doctors and nurses and, and other healthcare yeah. professionals get the reporting in on it. And let's find a reasonable plan that will put the money where it's needed, but will allow each, every province to move ahead. Because here's the thing. Talk about doctors and nurses and that they're in short supply everywhere now. All you need is one province to say, I'm going to pay you more. more. You just come work over here. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's, and, yeah. and so, how, you know, why is, that's not a Canadian thing. It's a very provincial thing. So, you know, but healthcare professionals and their credentials is a national issue now. So it's it's not clear to me on any basis seeing what's coming out of there that it's going to be radically changed what we're going to what we're the path we're on. It's going to be fine. It's going to be helpful. It's not nothing. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, you know, as we say back home, you know, in the Maritimes, it ain't going to change the water on the beans, right? <laughs> this is, you know, we're, you know, we're still going to be in the dynamic that uh, that we're in, and nothing I think that we saw yesterday is going to uh, to, to change that, uh, you know, that path. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Unfortunately, David, great, great conversation. I really appreciate you being here. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Yeah, also I I like the bay. I'm a bay guy. I, I buy a lot of clothes at the bay. Um, I, I I've always sort of marveled at how they've managed to sustain themselves. As we've seen so many other department stores go by the wayside, but we're seeing some trouble here. We're seeing some issues that the bay seems to be having. If you've ever wandered down Banff Avenue, 
and you probably have, um, you're familiar with the Bay Store on Banff Avenue, right? It's, I've always thought it was kind of a weird location that we'd have a bay on Banff Avenue, but lo and behold, there it is. I don't know how successful or how busy it is, but there's a bay right on Banff Avenue. It's been there since 1947. Uh, the bay's actually had a store in Banff since 1935, but this August, that all comes to an end. They're pulling their presence out of Banff, as well as a store in Edmonton, Londonderry Mall in North Edmonton. They're They're closing that store. So has the bay gone as far as they can go? Are they going to go the way that Eaton's went and that Sears went, or is this just an adjustment? Let's find out. We're going to chat with Heather Thompson, who is the executive director at the Alberta School of Business, School of Retailing at the University of Alberta. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Hi, good morning. Hey, before we get to the future of the Bay and all that stuff, first of all, just that store on Banff, I mean, it was unique, it, maybe mm-hmm. even weird, right? I mean, when you talk about department stores, that outlet on Banff Avenue was unlike any other department store I can think of. Yeah, and I think they did a good job of fitting what what the style yeah. was, you know, on Main Street Banff. And I actually am like quite sad personally to hear that it's going away because I think it kind of scratched that that itch of that nostalgia. I think they yeah. carried a lot of that heritage lo- uh, collection as well in there from my memory. So I think I'm actually like quite surprised. And you would think, I mean, with in terms of Canadiana, Hudson's Bay Company is right up there, and a lot of the things that they sell are recognized as being very Canadian. You think it would be a hit with tourists, wouldn't it? And I think it is. I do think it is a hit with tourists, but I just, I, I guess, the, what it wasn't a big enough hit to offset yeah. that much square feet. So I'd be curious to know if the Hudson's Bay Company, generally speaking, has a strategy to still operate locations that carry a good amount of that heritage loca- uh, collection. Uh, in terms of the future of the Bay, I mean, we're seeing two closures. It's not just the Bay one, but also the Londonderry outlet in Edmonton, which is another big, long-standing Hudson Bay outlet. Um, what's going on? What do you think? A couple of brick-and-mortar outlets closing down. What does it tell us about the Bay? Anything? Are we making too much of it? I don't, think we're, I don't think we're making too much of it. I think that this is something that we're seeing with department stores across, really across the world, especially in North America. Um, it's just a lot of square feet. And I think that the Bay is, re, I don't think it's the end of the Bay. I think what they're trying to do is scale back to have the correct amount of square footage so they're able to provide a better experience. And the Bay for, you know, hundreds of years have had, a good amount of square footage in in Canada. And so what's happening now, and this is not unique to the Bay or department stores, is that there's just too much square footage. It's too Mm -hmm. expensive to hold on to. So they need to readjust and closing the stores and readjusting what that sort of uh, in-person shopping experience looks like is going to be interesting. Like they're bringing in Zellers. Yeah, so Kingsway location to take up some of that square footage. So, um, I, but I do think it's a it's a hit to Londonderry and the community. I think that's oh, for sure. it is disappointing. Yeah, yeah. I got a text already saying, yeah, we're really upset that the bay is closing in Londonderry, but nowhere else. Why are we being hit? Um, you know what? I think you make a good point in terms of what they need in terms of square footage. Actual retail space probably changes almost on a daily basis. I like I say, I buy a lot of stuff at the bay in terms of clothing. Most of my clothes come from the bay, but a lot of it comes from online now. You know, it used yeah. to always have to go into the store, but now I'll buy some stuff online. I imagine they're seeing more and more and more of their sales and their revenue move to an online model. Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of people still want to do in-store shopping, but they're very comfortable with the product being shipped to their house a day later. So what's happened and for the the whole history of humans, the model of distribution was how you ran a business. You're like, I have the stock, come buy it. 
consumers didn't have an option. They had to go to that one store. They couldn't get online. So that was why we have so much square footage. You know, I remember when I first started working in retail, um, we always had this thing where we had three weeks of on-hand inventory. That was always the goal. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of storage to hang on to that. And now with shipping being so sophisticated, people okay with, you know, I'll look at it in the store and I'll get it shipped to my house. We need less and less and less. Like some, some studies say that we need about a quarter of the retail square footage uh, today than we did 30 years ago. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, part of me says, well, hey, trust trust the Bay. I mean, they're still here while Eaton's is gone and Sears is gone and Zeller's mm-hmm. went away, although it might be coming back thanks to the Bay. I mean, th- they've actually managed to navigate this changing landscape fairly well, haven't they? Yeah, it depends on who you ask. I think, you know, and, and to the person who texted in, it's not just you. Um, the bay, there's a lot of bay closures happening across the country um, and consolidating of base locations. Um, I think that this is just, it's going to be a big strategy. Um, and the, the bay, if they play this correctly, they could come out of this with, with more sales and having more consumer market because there's not a lot of competition, to be honest. Like no. if you compare it to the States, like you've got Target, you've got a lot of other different department stores that are actually in play there. Whereas in Canada, there isn't a lot. So the Bay could play this correctly and set up maybe even smaller locations offering similar product and, and, and uh, price points um, while still being, you know, kind of entrenched in the Canadian consumer's brain. Explain to me the the Zellers thing when when they're, when they're closing outlets and they're they're scaling back some of their operations, but at the same time bringing back Zellers locations. I mean, it seems contradictory to me. What am I missing? <laughs> it kind of does. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think what the the strategy there for the Bay is that, like I said, they had too much space, so they want to bring in a brand that uh, Canadians for the most part like. But at the same time, twelve or yeah, ten, twelve years ago. Sellers left for a reason, mm-hmm. um, but they left a very large hole in that exact market. So what that discount department store, apart from Walmart, doesn't really exist. And so what they're trying to do is offer that selection to bring back the consumer to hopefully have a, a new market of, of demographics that are going to be shopping at the Zellers brand. Um, because a lot of people really liked it and they're wondering if it wasn't so much the brand that wasn't successful, so much more than the execution and the experience of the Zeller store actually wasn't successful. Yeah, it got pretty nasty at the end. I'm not going to lie. It was. I worked there for like a week and <laughs> I remember Zeddy and the skillet and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, there's a lot of really good things about it, but that experience, and that's a really good example of a traditional distribution store. Um, and people just didn't enjoy their experience there. We started to see that. Yeah. And now experience is everything. So if it's not a great experience, people won't go. So I think the the Bay brand is trying to re kind of format what that experience is and really leaning into the nostalgia of the Zellers brand. Is it a continuing thing, Heather? And then I appreciate your time. I'll let you go. Um, when we talk about, you know, the transition to online and a lot of sales now happen there and things like that, I mean, is there going to be a sort of a balancing point where things even out or is it going to be a continuous progression that they're always constantly going to have to adapt to? I mean, there are still some people that like going to the store. I do. Um, but does it get smaller and smaller every day or is it sort of reached a point where it's holding now? I would say it's reached a point where it's holding now. Okay. I think we saw the, like the overabundance of this during the pandemic, of course, which just threw it into chaos. It just happened so fast. Like we were always going to end up at this point of people shopping online, but we were going to end up here in about 10 years. Um, and, and so I think we've reached a balancing point. The other thing that's really interesting to note is when I like to, you know, you like to shop in person. 
most people do, um, especially the younger demographics. Uh, the Gen Z are the demographic that's most likely to shop in person. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's an interesting way that our brain connects when yeah. we are shopping on person versus in uh, in uh, online. So I think that that is something where we're not going to see this like dwindle of retail and you know people like where did all the stores go? I just think the retail that we are going to have to choose from is going to be very good because of this competition. I think boring retail is dead. Ugly retail is dead. That not so great experience is dead. So we're going to be left with the retailers that we want to spend time in. And mm-hmm. that's where we're going to want to spend our money. Which couldn't be another challenge to Bay faces. Cause let's face it. Some of those stores have been around a really, really long time. And, and you know what? The other weird thing about, I was thinking about those stores is that they, and this was a thing in the 70s, right, with the weather that we have here in Canada. And people are like, malls are dead. I'm like, boring malls are dead. Ugly malls are dead. Right, yeah. But we're in Canada. It's not going anywhere. But there's no windows, right? So if you look yeah, at right. the perimeter, it's like that natural light is missing. So we really need to be adjusting what the consumer wants today, a natural light and a better shopping experience. So I foresee a lot of renovations in the future of department stores and different retail in general to make it pleasing for today's consumers. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, and they'll adapt and they'll change and, and, and those who succeed will succeed. Uh, had a great conversation as always. Thanks so much. Uh, the U.S. military, uh, they've started to release some of the pictures of the pieces of that Chinese surveillance balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina on the weekend. Apparently, the debris field there is, is massive. It's huge. It's like 15 football fields by 15 football fields. It's big. Uh, the Pentagon has said the balloon itself was more than 60 meters tall. It's about 200 feet tall, this balloon. The important bits, the payload, um, and they think it's primarily sensors that they're interested in uh, and cameras. Norad says that was broken, and so far only parts of it have been found to this point. So we may not get the... that That's the part they're really interested in, not the balloon. They, they don't care about that. Um Now, there's been a lot of analysis and a lot of talk about how this incident was handled by both Canada and by the United States. It did travel through Canadian airspace before it ever got to the United States in Montana. Then it traveled clear across the continent before it got into the waters off South Carolina, and that's when it was shot down. Apparently, the U.S. president said, go ahead and shoot it down uh, on Wednesday, but it was several days before that action was taken. So... What was going on in the meantime? A lot of people saying it showed weakness on the part of the United States and Canada. They didn't respond and bring it down quicker. Not everybody's in agreement saying, no, it was handled the best way it could have been handled. So um, we're going to have a conversation now with Michael Byers, who is the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. Michael, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, you, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of us have asked questions, what was Canada doing? We, we know they were aware of it, nor it has said as much, but we, we didn't really have a lot of insight into what action was taken, if any. But you've done, you've done some work around that, right? You've actually uh, done some analysis and, and looked into that. What, what, what have you found? Well, what I think is most interesting is that um, uh, eight days ago, um, the Royal Canadian Air Force deployed uh, a number of planes to south central bc Um, we know this from publicly available flight tracking data so there was a a, a, an aurora patrol aircraft that uh, flew from comox on vancouver island and spent a a couple of hours over the selkirk mountains um, and uh, you know was essentially doing tracks back and forth 
these planes have got very powerful sensors on them uh, that can image things, uh, you know, on the ground, in the ocean, uh, in the sky. Uh, so that plane was probably taking some really high-resolution uh, photographs and maybe even radar images of the balloon um, because the balloon was in the same area. Um, and there was also a, a Polaris uh, long-range air-to-air uh, tanker. Um, this is a converted Airbus uh, that had been deployed initially from Trenton, Ontario to Cold Lake, Alberta, and then flew from Cold Lake to the same area in south-central B.C., and was doing a whole lot of its own tracks consistent with what happens when you're refueling fighter jets. Um, Now, we don't know whether there were any CF-18s in the area because you can't track them using publicly available data, but my guess is that there were several fighter jets there. So the, the Canadian government took a really close look at this balloon eight days ago. Okay, so yeah, and we can infer that it's not like they were not aware of it or not interested or not paying attention. They were very much engaged in keeping a very close eye on this balloon and where it was headed and what it was doing. Absolutely, and and they would have been uh, coordinating all of this uh, with the, the U.S. military. Um, Canada and the United States are joined in the uh, North American Aerospace Defense Command. My guess is that the balloon was spotted while it was still uh, west of Alaska over the Bering Sea, uh, because the U.S. military has very powerful radars in that area uh, to, to you know, spot incoming uh, ballistic missiles and to, to guide anti-ballistic uh, missile interceptors. Uh, so the best radars in the world uh, were pointing in the direction this balloon was, was coming. Um, so, yeah, we knew about it really early. And when it came over B.C., uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, took a, a really close look. Um, and, and obviously, because we had fighter jets, then mm-hmm. we could have shot it down, and we chose not to do so. Um, and that's exactly what happened when the balloon got to Montana. Right. R- reports are that President Biden wanted to shoot it down, and the U.S. military said, no, let's wait. And my guess is they, they wanted to, to wait because they wanted to retrieve the balloon in the safest possible way which was after the balloon crossed the coast of South Carolina and was over the U.S. territorial sea. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the reports we have from the White House are that Biden said shoot it down on Wednesday. He gave the green light and the military said, no, no, we're going we're gonna to wait until, you know, we don't want this thing falling into a populated area, whatever. We'll do it when it's safe to do so. And it took to the weekend for it to get to South Carolina. They did there then. So what do you make of the people saying this shows weakness in the, and that Canada and the United States should have taken action sooner? Was anything lost by waiting, do you think? Well, I would ask those people how they would feel if the balloon had been shot down over B.C. or over Montana and a person on the ground was killed by the falling debris. I mean, the the platform under this balloon was about the the length of a mid-sized jet aircraft, right? Yeah, yeah. Falling from 60,000 feet. Um, you know, a very high speed, a lot of mass, um, and there are people in remote areas. I mean, there, there, there are people, you know, snowmobiling and doing backcountry skiing in the Selkirk Mountains of BC. There are, you know, there are ranchers and, and, uh, and oil workers and other kinds of people in the, the, the remote areas of Montana. So, so yeah, um, you know, what is strong? Is, is strong taking a, a risk with the lives of your own citizens, or is it you know, deciding to wait to protect them and to, to ultimately achieve the goal of retrieving as much of the balloon as possible? And I guess ultimately what it comes down to is it, 
Well, it's important that what Canadians and Americans think about the way the government's handled it. It's probably more important what the Chinese regime thinks about the way it was handled, right? And whether or not they got the message. Do you think they did? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the Chinese would have looked at this and, and, and said, you know, wow, that, that's actually a, you know, a very measured response. Uh, they uh, uh, didn't act rashly. I'm, I'm talking about the, the Canadian yeah. U.S. governments. They, um, they, they, they ultimately shot the balloon down. They asserted the, their sovereignty by shooting it down. They're, they're totally entitled to have done that. Um, you know, the, the, the Chinese now know the next time they send a balloon that, that it will either be shot down um, over you know, the ocean or, or a very large lake, um, or the United States military will develop a way of capturing these balloons and bringing them back down. And you know, I'd be very surprised if the U.S. military hasn't been instructed to develop that ability ASAP. Right. And ultimately, I guess we see if this happens again, because this wasn't the first time a balloon like this had crossed into North American air space it's happened before um the question now is will it happen again i guess we just have to wait and see yeah it's happened before and and we didn't know about it because uh you know i guess it didn't happen on a clear sunny day um you know it just happened to be clear and sunny over montana uh, last Wednesday, mm-hmm. the, the general public was able to see this uh, uh, bright white thing in the sky, and that's how this uh, whole uh, big media story started. Um, but uh, you know, there there are far serious threats to to North American security than this balloon. You know, just the amount of of uh, of, of, of cyber activity that's uh, probing all of our defenses uh, in terms of the internet and government commuter- computers every single day. I mean, the balloon was a bad thing, but uh, uh, it wasn't the biggest thing, and I think that both governments acted responsibly. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.